Hey everybody, this is episode 18, How to Read Old Testament Laws. I do want to start with a really intense, serious, and maybe kind of strange question for you, though. What do you call a French guy that's getting mauled by a lion? I know, this is a little dark. You call him Claude. Yeah, Claude. So, I'm going to talk about Old Testament laws. And here's the logic and why I want to talk about Old Testament laws with you guys. We have been thinking about morality for a few episodes and thinking about how can the the belief system of Christianity offer a moral belief system and yet people have issues with the God of the Old Testament and the choices that God made with the flood, with the conquest period, and also with the Old Testament laws. People read them and they have a lot of problems with them for what they think the laws are, are saying. Richard Dawkins very famously starts his book, The God Delusion, with a ton of very negative adjectives about God. And a good amount of this has to do with how he is interpreting these laws or these narratives in the Old Testament. And I am more convinced than ever that if Richard Dawkins could take a hermeneutics course, it, it may actually help him readjust some of his conceptions, at least about the Bible. Uh, I, I know I'm an optimist, but I really think this is helpful stuff. So just thinking about laws for a second and laws that sound strange to us. Did you know that in Kentucky, there's a law still in the books that says every legislator, public officer, and lawyer must take an oath stating that they have not fought a duel with a deadly weapon. In West Virginia, you can't attempt to substitute a hunting dog for a ferret. <laughs> I mean, these laws are there because people apparently have done some of these things. And in Missouri, apparently we need a law that says wrestling a bear is a bad idea. There's apparently a lot of bear wrestling going on in Missouri. So really strange laws, but you know what? Somebody starts opening up their Bible and they jump to Exodus 21, seven. And it says, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. And just right away in our 21st century perception, we read that and say, oh boy, the God of the Old Testament is warranting slavery. And of course, we read that anachronistically through the lens of colonial slavery. So a, a simple explanation of this verse and what slavery was in the ancient Near East 
pretty much takes the fire completely out of the issue here that somebody might have with this. So I'll come back to that in a little bit. So what I want to do is just go through the four contexts with you guys and highlight some some ideas that I think are very helpful. And I'm going to throw out some new ideas to, to you guys, and hopefully it'll be thought-provoking, and, and maybe you'll see these Old Testament laws a little differently than you ever have before. Because maybe, just maybe, we're bringing baggage or ideas to our understanding of what a law is. And what if even the word law or Torah what if it's not even a really good translation of that Hebrew word? So let's jump into reader's context. Remember, this is the stuff that we bring. So there's an expectation that people have when they look at the laws in the Old Testament by Christians and non-Christians. Uh, they think that if they are laws given in the Bible, that the intent is that they are to be followed, that God wanted them to be obeyed and followed, and that today we are to obey and follow them. I understand why that's a perception of some people, um, but of course they have no concept of maybe what the covenants are, and there's so many things to talk about. Another idea is people think that this is God's ideal for all societies, that God thought to himself, what is the best way I can put together society? Ah, I know, here we go. And it's this highly patriarchal kind of society where Apparently slavery is mentioned and people uh, are stoned to death for all sorts of things that today we would hesitate in saying, yep, let's go ahead and stone that person for that. So is this God's ideal? And I think that that's something that we need to think about. Again, the word law. What, what does the word law for us today mean? And did it mean the same for them back then? And interestingly, what's something else that we experience is the Ten Commandments. And I know I'm, I'm uh, traveling into some uh, polarizing ground here as I say this, but there, there are some that view the Ten Commandments as re reflecting God's moral law. And uh, the Ten Commandments are, are viewed in a way that's divided up in the, in the Old Testament covenant with moral laws and civil laws and ceremonial laws. So these are some of the things that in our Christian culture we see. Tremper Longman, an Old Testament scholar, says, the Bible is always true, but our interpretations are not always true. For example, let's go back to Exodus 21.7, when a man sells his daughter as a slave. Well, here's just a little historical context. If a father was coming on tough financial times, what's he going to do with his kids? So what he would do is he would provide for them by selling them to another family as an indentured servant. And really a better way to look at this is through the, the, the lens of colonial American indentured servanthood. And the daughter would be provided for. And after seven years, she'd be freed. She'd be let go. And the father, hopefully in that time frame, has gotten back on his feet and has a financially... Um, safe um, environment for the kids to come back and, and raise their kids and get married and, and all this stuff. And so actually this father who sounds pretty awful now is pretty awesome 
because he selfishly isn't going to hold on to his kids. He's going to do everything he can to keep them safe and save them. And so there's something there that kind of is a game changer, I think, when we think about the historical context. I think we need to just learn more about what's going on in their world. I cannot encourage you guys enough. I'll post it here for you to watch the Bible Project video on how to read the law of the Old Testament. It's an amazing video. I'll post it for you guys. But one thing they start in that video by saying is the law is not a behavior manual with a complete list of what to do and not to do to make God happy. The Bible isn't that, and the Old Testament law is not that either. It's not a behavior manual with a complete list of what to do and not do to make God happy. So the next question is, what is the law? What what are the laws of the Old Testament? So let's get into some historical context. Remember, this is a passport getting into their world. I have a thesis statement for you guys that I'm going to follow for the rest of the lesson. And I apologize. It is obnoxiously long. So forgive me for this, but I'll say it a few times, okay? So here's my big idea. The Old Testament law is a compilation of illustrative statements of wisdom rooted in key ideals, which contrasts Israel's neighbors, in a narrative explaining God's covenant with Israel to make them a light to the nations. Luckily, this is a podcast and you can just go back and listen to it, or I'll say it a few more times later. But let me zoom in on that first one. It's a compilation of illustrative statements. What do I mean there? Well, interestingly, in the Old Testament, ancient Near East uh, environment, sorry, that was the oven. My wife is preheating it because she's making this awesome bread. Oh man, guys, it's so good. Anyway, in the Old Testament um, time frame, there's actually tons of societies that would collect laws. The law code of Hammurabi was uh, is, a, is a famous one. And the, the laws, interestingly, sound in some ways very similar to the Old Testament law. And yet, interestingly, there are some differences. So uh, there's a, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth law. But interestingly, it, the Hammurabi Code doesn't have a law that says if you break the tooth or pop out the eye of a slave, the slave can go free. But that's what Exodus 21 says. The slave is, is going to go free. So we freak out that the Bible's condoning slavery, maybe. But you know what? In the ancient Near East, they would freak out because the slave can go free. And they would say, whoa, the God of Israel is so different than our God. And I think there's something there that's very important. What was law in the ancient Near East? I think it's very different uh, from the laws that we think about today. Their law is what scholars call common law. Our law is what we call statutory law. And it seems like these law collections did not dictate actual legal practice. They're, they're doing something else. And so we've got to think to ourselves, what was their law like? Maybe I'll start with ours. Our law, statutory law, is law brought together in a written text. 
and only what's written down is law. And this law code is the authority in all matters. And judges will refer to the law code even when matters are unclear. In the ancient Near East, guys, totally different. Laws are not found in a written code for a judge. Laws change through decisions of, of judges. The law is actually quite fluid and not totally binding in all things. And judges use law as a source, but it's just a source of wisdom, of wisdom. And it seems like there's a good amount of evidence for this idea that the law in the Old Testament should be better viewed or understood as instruction. In other words, providing parameters or boundaries, uh, illustrative ideas on how to handle situations. But what the punishment says wasn't necessarily what has to be done. One uh, reference worth noting is Numbers 35.21, which says, don't accept a ransom for murder, which seems to teach that you could pay a ransom for any other crime that uh, is um, said to require a stoning for that person who's committing that crime. So this is really interesting. Scholars are talking about this stuff quite a bit. Um, another thought, just to highlight real quick, because I got I got to move, is the interesting uh, act by the prophets and boy, even by Jesus, to summarize the law. And there's something very interesting about that. Micah 6, 8 does this. You guys know this passage. God has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What's the law? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. And of course, we're going to highlight in a few minutes, Jesus summarized the law, didn't he? So what is the law? I'd like to suggest the law was, was wisdom. It was wisdom. It was instruction. Uh, it's it's illustrative parameters. Think about bowling. Man, I, I'm a horrible bowler, and uh, I I need those bumpers to pop up so that my, my ball doesn't go in the gutter. And it seems to me that that's maybe a good illustration for what these laws were. They're providing illustrations and parameters. They are like proverbs. They're not rules, but guidelines. I feel like I just quoted Pirates of the Caribbean there, and that was not intentional. Anyway, think about a proverb. Can you obey a proverb, or do you heed a proverb? Isn't that interesting? To obey, the Hebrew word obey is shama, and it means to hear or to listen, to heed. So I'm, I'm going to argue that the laws provided here are instructions for ruling, for wisdom. They are describing, not prescribing. They are rooted in key ideals. This is the next thing. I'm not suggesting everything's up for grabs. And it seems like the Ten Commandments are kind of a, a good way to summarize the relationship that we have with God and with others. The first four seem to relate a lot to God, and the next six seem to relate to others. Interesting little mini Bible nugget here. What does it mean to take God's name in vain? The, the Hebrew translation there, I think, is better translated to carry God's name or God's presence or being his representative 
in a way that you don't care about. I think actually, if you think about the first two commands, they're about no gods, no idols. And then this next one, I think is saying, you're the idol. Be the idol that God has made you to be. Hey, Israel, represent God well to the nations. Don't carry his name, his presence in a way that doesn't show him well to the nations. Something to think about there, guys. Um, the Ten Commandments seem to be something that Jesus summed up. Love God, love others. And the rest of the commands, as we read through them, seem to unpack more of how to do that. And again, it seems like God's reputation is at the top of the list there. So let's keep going. The, the laws contrast with Israel's neighbors. I think this is really important. And I just want to highlight here that I think we, we read these laws anachronistically. We see them through our modern cultural lens. And I think we need to see them through the lens of a, an ancient Babylonian and say, like what it says in Deuteronomy, that when, when your neighbors, Israel, hear about these laws, they will say, what kind of a God do you have, Israel, that has such amazing laws and hears you when you pray to them? Um, I think this is something that's really important to highlight. I'm going to move here, people. I, I got a few minutes left. These laws are in a narrative context. I think this is really important. I'm getting into literary context here with you guys. Where do I find these laws? Do I find them in a separate law book? Or do I find it in a narrative story? Turns out we find it in a narrative story. Think about it. Exodus 1 through 19, Israel coming out of Egypt. Then what do I get? I get laws, a list of laws, chapters 20 through like 34 laws. And then right after that, first thing that Israel does is they break the first couple laws that were given in the previous section. It seems that these laws function as a character in the narrative. They, the laws function as a character by the author and the author is trying to make a claim, a theological claim, about Israel's inability to keep all these laws. In fact, when do all these laws, uh, when do they all wrap up? At the end of Deuteronomy. And what does Moses say at the end of Deuteronomy? You guys, Israel, you've shown you can't keep these laws. And he says, do you know what you guys need? You need a new heart. And lo and behold, that's the story of the rest of the Old Testament. God saying, I need to give my people a new heart. And in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a new covenant with my people. And I'm going to give them a new heart by my spirit. And boy, that gets picked up in Romans 2 when Paul says, you want to know who a Jew is? It's someone who has their heart circumscribed, circumcised by the spirit, he says. So these laws, what else are they? They are explaining God's covenant with Israel. God didn't make this covenant with any other nation back then or today. These laws are recognized as what was known as a suzerainty treaty. A suzerain king would make a covenant relationship treaty with a vassal king who was the weaker king. And the suzerain would say, here's the deal. We're going to do this. Here are the laws. And they'd make a copy for each king. 
By the way, that's probably why there's two tablets. God didn't run out of room. I think there's two laws because there was two copies and God's saying, just keep my copy with yours. And what's the point? What's the point of all of it? Uh, it seems to me that these laws were given to Israel so that they could be a light to the nation. They could show off God's wisdom to the nations. In other words, guys, we, we've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil here. God, God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat of this tree because I want to give you my wisdom. And we have another situation here where God's saying, I want to give you wisdom. Don't eat of this tree. Let me give you wisdom. And of course, Israel does eat of the tree. They do define good and evil in their own way. Even though God said to them in Exodus 19, you guys are to be a kingdom of priests. It's kind of like a mom or dad saying to the child, what you do reflects on me. Have you heard that one before? seems like Israel's job was to enhance God's reputation. The laws were for them to be different. Why does God want them wearing two different types of material in their clothing? Not because cotton and polyester are sinful, but because that's what the Canaanites did in their worship. What about eating pig? What's up with that? How come we can't have bacon on our burgers? Well, because the Canaanites sacrificed to their gods using pigs. God's saying, I don't want you to go there. Don't do that. You got to be different. You got to stand out. So there's a lot of stuff in here to reflect on. But let me just wrap up with this. What, what do we have? We have Bible context. God saying one day, I'm actually going to change the hearts of my people. In Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, it says that God's going to make a new covenant. And he's going to give his spirit to people. And they're going to heed his law. They're going to listen and obey. And boy, what does God do at Pentecost, Acts 2? He pours out his spirit, doesn't he? So I think the idea here, big idea, is about being God's representative. Israel was to be God's representative to their neighbors, to draw people to join Israel. And guys, it's nothing new. This is our calling. What does God call the church in Revelation, in 1 Peter? He calls us a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a, a royal priesthood. It's the same language as, as what he says to Israel. And what's our job? Our job is to represent God, to, to present the gospel, to make the announcement that Jesus is king and he's brought his kingdom. And we are to put that kingdom ethic on display for people, for them to see God's wisdom uh, through our obedience, and also through our failures as we confess our sins to people and rely on God's grace. My hope and my prayer is that there was a lot here, but my hope and prayer is that this was encouraging for you guys, something to think about, and I want to say Merry Christmas.